it was 7,000 people, I think, when I joined Google. For me, it was the biggest place I'd ever worked. It was chaotic. It was a matrix of multiple dimensions. It was absent of hierarchy. It worked in a totally different way. Welcome to Executive Realness, the show where we learn from the women behind the world's most innovative companies. If you haven't already, make sure you download the Stackworld app today, available on Android and iOS, and be part of our global community. My guest today is a powerhouse in the field of media and marketing. Anna Bateson is the Chief Executive Officer of the Guardian Media Group. She has spent most of her career overseeing the marketing development of all your favorite media brands, including Bloomberg, ITV, Google, and YouTube. In this episode, you can expect to learn the power of being open with your colleagues when difficult decisions have to be made, balancing career decisions with your home life, and how to transform a business model to thrive in the digital age. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Anna. Hello. Welcome to Executive Realness. Well, thank you for having me. I want to start right at the beginning. Where did you grow up and did you always know that you wanted to be in media? I grew up in Cambridge. My father was an academic, so a scientist. And uh, it was a very happy upbringing, but it was very much shaped by by his um, science and almost a voc- he, it's almost like a vocation. You know, mm. he was completely obsessed about the work and research and and sort of the purity of what he did and I had no idea what I wanted to do the only thing I knew was I didn't want to do that you know and I didn't want to be a scientist and I didn't have any of that kind of vocation and it was further complicated by the fact that my sister absolutely followed in his path same discipline science academia and so again it was almost like I knew I didn't want to be like her and I knew I wanted to be uh, my own person defined against that but I had no idea what that would be. And I had no real exposure to any other world other than an academic one. And so I, I think that there was just a sort of failure of imagination. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what jobs could be and what jobs there were. Yeah, so it was, it was, a, it was a sort of exercise of, of discovery. I mean, both about what I was interested in, but also what was possible. You were a renegade in that respect, but you didn't actually go far from home in where you studied, right? Well, I went to Oxford, so that seemed that seemed like a rebellion and it wasn't home. Um, but no, it was sort of that, you know, again, in a way, that's a bit of a failure of imagination. It's a sense of that was the world that I knew. It was getting away from home in the sense that, you know, physically it was a different location, but it wasn't getting away from home very much in the sort of, um, I suppose, the type of atmosphere and the type of kind of sphere that I was in. But I did very much actively choose away from science. I didn't want to have anything to do with science. You studied PPE. What do you remember from your time there? I remember that it was as much about growing up as a person as it was actually about study. I remember that it was relatively late that I really suddenly discovered kind of passion and interest for the work. At the beginning, it was much more about people and friendships and sort of you know social life and parties I was perpetually confused by philosophy I just (laughs) didn't understand (laughs) any of it or the why why we were doing it or what the purpose of it was and I was fascinated by the politics bit Mm. so I was fascinated by news current events Mm. international relations I read the economist uh so so I think that in a way that was the beginning of being interested by media I just didn't necessarily you know put it in that kind of language 
Um, I went to university thinking I wanted to be a journalist. And that was mainly because my grandfather was a journalist. He'd worked at the BBC. He'd been a foreign correspondent. And, and I liked writing and I loved him. And he would tell me incredible stories about his work and, you know, in the war and after the war. But I got to university and I was incredibly intimidated by the sort of student journalists who all seemed totally to know what they wanted mm. to do. And they found writing really easy and I found writing a bit more difficult. And so I sort of, I, I rejected the idea of journalism because I think I was a bit intimidated by people's certainty that mm. that was what they wanted and their kind of immersion in it. And I just was just a bit, I was a bit less certain about what my path was going to be. So I remember getting to the end of, of, of my time there and realizing that, oh, that was the reality that you had to get a job. And I was desperate to come to London. I've always loved London and I'd always sort of had this, you know, incredible kind of attraction to London. And obviously to live in London, you needed a job and you kind of, you know, there were lots of things that you could go and do where you had to work for free. So I was quite interested by politics mm. and I thought maybe I could go and um, get a job being a sort of researcher for an MP. But that was all kind of unpaid. And if you had to pay rent and you, you couldn't do that. So I I thought I was interested in, in communications. And, and so I ended up in this kind of um, PR area and it was a political PR or financial PR. And I just the job I got was in financial PR. So that was how I emerged from this time of, of reading, you know, PPE. And I ended up with a job basically um, sort of on the edges of the city doing financial PR. How did you deal with uncertainty during that time? Were you trying different things out? Were you experimenting? Or how, you know, not knowing what you wanted to do while being at one of the most prestigious institutions in the world, how did you deal with that? Did you have a game plan around it? No, I've never had a game plan. And I think that I was intimidated by people who seemed to have a game plan because that that would seem to be a very, you know, sort of reassuring thing. Uh I don't know that I was that reflective in a way. I think I, in a sense, I, I I let life take me. I've always been curious and I've always been interested in people and willing, you know, to kind of follow things up and go and talk to people and and take paths, even if they're not the expected path. So sort of in a sense, doing the the less obvious thing was quite appealing. In a sense, I suppose it's it was my own kind of slightly, you know, the half-hearted form of rebellion, yeah. which is if the expected path was academia and sort of very intellectual, then there was something very appealing about coming to London and being unashamedly and almost anti-intellectual. I mean, not in a very profound way, but it did feel like a bit of a kind of, I'm going to go and, you know, wear smart clothes and work in this sort of rather kind of unfamiliar environment, which was mystifying to my parents. And that was part of the point. Tell me about your first proper job. Mm, my first proper job. Oh, so the first, so my first proper job was in financial PR. Um, it was working for Tim Bell, had this business, Low Bell, and it had all sorts of different, it had consumer PR and political PR and financial PR. They just decided they were going to experiment with um, hiring graduates. So they hired two graduates. We were both women and they didn't really have any idea what to do with us. And um, I remember feeling utterly useless at the beginning and I remember the wonderfulness of when I actually got a computer on my desk because then I could look busy you know otherwise you were just sort of sitting staring at an empty desk um and it was a lot of learning you know what was a fax machine what was a PL, how did the city work uh what was the interrelationship between journalists and uh city institutions and PR and lawyers 
And it was all about kind of essentially management of stories, management of information, and, and just a sort of an appreciation that the city was all about, you know, information and data and news. And relationship, surely. Yes, yes, I suppose that's right. It was very much about people, you're right, and and who you knew and how you got to know people and how you kind of leveraged that sort of, um, those relationships in what you were trying to achieve. I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with that being dropped into a job, not knowing what to do, not necessarily having training, and especially no. if it's your first job, like staring at a, a computer without a to-do list what do you advise in those first like that first month of a new job when you're not actually sure what you're meant to be doing oh yes and even sort of more fundamentally what to wear I mean that was the biggest challenge it was sort of you know I didn't have any clothes that were suitable and I remember being um pulled into my boss who was probably quite a young man I mean he's probably in his early 30s seemed old I was gonna say but I'm really (laughs) seemed really old different different generation (laughs) Um, and he lectured me because I was wearing trousers because I had, you know, I had three items of smart clothing and, you know, I was wearing trousers and a jacket. And he said, women don't wear trousers in the city. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, it's quite a long time ago, wow. but it feels like prehistoric yeah. now. So I found it really difficult. I remember crying um, on the stairs and sort of kind of crying in the corridor because I didn't know what I was meant to do. I think a lot of it comes down to who is your boss and and do they, can they help you? Can they guide you? If you're unlucky and you have someone who doesn't understand that they have a teaching role and a, and to some extent a sort of mentoring role um, in those early days, then that's tough. And I think you have to build your own relationships and networks and they are the people who will help you. And in the end, it was the it was the relationship with the other graduate, with the with the group of women who was who were the secretaries actually that were the most helpful, and they would they would guide you, and they understood how to work when you were meant to come to work, how to work the various bits of equipment, literally how to work the paper, you know, the photocopier. It's really interesting because we talk about peer groups all the time. I would still say that to this day, the relationships in my network are ones that I made 20 years ago when we were all just assistants yeah. kind of grinding together. Tell me about your role after that. Was Did you go straight to Bloomberg after the yes. financial PR? So basically... Um, How did you get that job? Yeah, so we had a Reuters terminal in in the office explain what that is for anyone who doesn't yeah. know so, so at that point it was essentially a computer screen that had all sorts of financial information so and and various analytics so you could call up share prices performance of of different financial kind of instruments and crucially it had the rns feed which was essentially um the i, I think it's the reuters news feed which is the way that the city handles official so whenever a company's doing their results they have to put out a press release etc it goes into the feed and any bits of financial information are fed into that feed and that was at that point how the city ran and at some point this must have been in 1994 so i think bloomberg had set um, up his company in 1989 and it beca- I became aware that there was a competitor to Reuters called Bloomberg. And so I set off to go and do some research. And I made an appointment and I went to their office in Finsbury Square. And I met the man who was at that point their head of sales. And I interviewed him. I wanted to find out what it was, um, uh, why it was different to Reuters, etc. And I took the paper back 
to my financial PR company and said, there's, this is really interesting. It's a really interesting developing new service. It's got news attached to it. It's got multimedia. And then I got him and he was called Lex Fennec and I got him to come in and present to the sort of the slightly Luddite, rather old fashioned, you know, very male dominated kind of financial PR business. And it was like, this is the future. You know, this is where we're going. Um, and on the back of that, he basically offered me a job. And um, my mother thought this was very suspicious. You know, this sort of <laughs> man offering me a job for a company that she'd never heard of. And I think she thought- American, no less. American. <laughs> he was very compelling. It was so exciting. The office, the Bloomberg office was, was completely beautiful because he understood that as a challenger brand, you know, you had to present in a, in a certain way and you had to prove that you had this kind of um, credibility and, and, you know, authority and sort of power in a way, which he already had. And so the offices were completely beautiful. They were filled with fish tanks. I mean, they still are. They still are so stunning. And he had all sorts of very um, ahead of his time um, philosophies and beliefs about corporate life. He, no one had a title. It was meant to be very, very, very unhierarchical. There was no some sense of the executive floor or the executive dining room, which believe it or not, at that point still existed. Everyone sat in open plan. We all had sort of, um, we were all on the phone at the time because it was pre kind of real email and it was totally buzzy. Everyone had to be at work at their desks by eight o'clock and you weren't allowed to leave until six. And the office was filled with fresh fruit and really nice coffee. And this idea that um, when you were there, you had to work hard and you had to be completely committed, but he would really look after you and you'd have the best technology and the best kit. And that was really exciting. And so Lex offered me a job and I went in to be a booker basically for their multimedia. So they would have, they would bring sort of chief execs in and, and analysts into the office. They would do interviews and they would put them up on the terminal. It was another way basically for, for business, you know, kind of leaders to get their message out and to reach the city and to reach actually um, financial kind of, I suppose, analysts and sort of you know, kind of traders and, and salespeople all around the world. And and of course, the other agenda was you brought people into this office and you got to sort of soft sell them mm. what Bloomberg was about. And and it was an amazing business to be part of because they were in, I mean, in high growth. I, mean, I didn't really understand any of this at the time, but they were in high growth. They were very much about um, belief in the individual that if you wanted, if you wanted to kind of do things, if you had ideas, if you were curious, if you were driven, um, uh, they would invest in you and they would really give you as much as you could take until, you know, uh, until you didn't want it you anymore. You reached your or, upper limit. Yeah. And so it was a total, um, you know, time of opportunity and an incredible, um, privilege because he had, he was a he was incredibly successful already. It was a subscription business. The terminal business was fantastically cash generative. He had no desire to to IPO, um, so it was a private business. It still is, and with the cash that was thrown off, he was investing in media. It, the multimedia kind of proposition on the terminal turned into television. He then went on to buy magazines and launch print, and he was just a he was just a sort of um, a visionary. And this incredible sort of bundle of energy who was building an empire. Um, and I had the good fortune that Lex, the man who'd hired me, then became the leader of all of, of Europe. You know, that's an incredible bit of luck if the person who believes in you and who's investing in you then becomes the, the sort of essentially the CEO or the MD of, of, of your organization. 
22 is incredibly young. What do you think that he saw in you at that time to effectively headhunt you? I think he saw curiosity, energy, the excitement about the new and a a lack of interest in being conventional. You didn't go to Bloomberg to be part of the establishment. You know, that was sort of Reuters, which was old-fashioned and wood-panelled and, and you know, sort of really English. And Bloomberg was this kind of, you know, he was disruptive. He was, um, he was American. He started off by really providing bond information, not, you know, the establishment, which was probably much more equities. It was a step away from a kind of stuffy Englishness. And Lex was himself a kind of, he was the product of the establishment. He was English. He'd rebelled in his own way. And I think that he was attracted to people who were trying to be part of something that wasn't like their parents and it wasn't, it wasn't conventional. What are some of the differences that you've noticed between working with an American company versus a British company? So I think, I think it's very different now. And I think that that mid-90s, I suppose, followed by the whole kind of tech boom crash, you know, then kind of the rise of the internet again, I think has led to enormous amounts of change in the UK in a, in a healthy way. You know, we're much less stuffy and establishment and hierarchical and class-based than we used to be, even though there is still some of that. And that is to kind of, you know, that's the sort of less appealing, less energizing part, I suppose, of sort of the UK kind of Britishness. Mm-hmm. Um, I I didn't really, I didn't have anything to compare it to when I went to Bloomberg, really, other than my year in this, what was actually quite a stuffy sort of old fashioned financial PR business with lots of men who, I mean, at that point on Fleet Street, there were wine bars where women couldn't go into particular bits. You know, I mean, it was there so... Still, there still are, by the way, if you think about the gentlemen's clubs, there's I, I mean, still it's those just places. just mind-blowing. But I didn't really know enough to question it, in a sense. And, of course, Bloomberg had none of that. You know, it was, it was I think, such a wonderful culture to be in because it was flat and it wasn't misogynist and it wasn't sexist. And actually, you could progress just as well as a woman as you could as a man. And actually, it was, are you driven and and ambitious and creative and loyal um, much more than what gender are you? And I think that was very exciting, but I didn't really realize how special it was. Um, I was there for five years, and, and of course, I should have stayed, but, but you don't know how precious it is until you go and experience something which which doesn't have that kind of mm. sense of... Um, possibility and the willingness to invest in the individual and I made a few kind of I went and worked for a couple of startups um, that were very much lacking in any of the things that Bloomberg had I got made redundant twice in three years because we ran out of money in both cases it was very humbling that experience you know I'd been very privileged and almost pampered at Bloomberg and you know and on the rise as well totally on the rise and I sort of felt invincible because I had people who believed in me and you learn through bitter experience how actually delicate that is and what a lucky situation it is and it's not just about you it's actually about the environment you find yourself in and the people that you find yourself surrounded by it's not a you know it's not a kind of God-given right, and it's not because you're so super brilliant. It's because you've been lucky enough to find yourself in that situation and taken the opportunity. How do you deal with the 
low point of redundancies and yeah. of, you know questioning if you'd made the right career decision well I, I mean looking back it was incredibly valuable because you learn resilience and you learn you are humbled and you build yourself up from it but you also learn you're stronger than you think uh, you learn that life has a way of kind of you know if you keep trying you'll you know you'll get another job and you'll find yourself back into it doors don't all close but at the time yes I mean it, it was hard and it does lead you to question lots of things. You lean into being unhappy and not being, you realize that you shouldn't take it for granted being unhappy at work. And that's quite a valuable lesson to learn. I would have gone back to Bloomberg like a shot if I could. And interestingly, he always had, he had one rule, Mike, which was if you left, that was it. You were dead to Oof. them. There was no going back. <laughs> that's so cold. <laughs> it's really, I mean, but, but effective. Yeah. So it really makes you think twice about leaving because, you know, you feel, and it was a real kind of lesson in, wow, that's a sort of, that was a bad decision in a way. But hey, you've got to get on with it. Um, there's a bit, I think, that I learned then, which is, there's only so much merit in stressing the decisions that you've made. You have to learn from them, which is, okay, I'll bank that experience, which is this was amazing because of X, Y, and Z. And this wasn't because I found myself working for people I didn't particularly admire or I didn't feel I could learn from in environments that felt much less positive and much less kind of respectful and, and, and kind, but also kind of exciting and, and innovative. But you also realize that spending too long reflecting on decisions that were unfortunate and regretting them, regret is a kind of redundant emotion. If you can, if you can try not to indulge in regret, I think you're a better person. Just like there are certain things that you have to kind of, you have to turn yourself away from. I think too much regret when it becomes negative is one of them. Envy and sort of jealousy is another one. There's no point in looking at other people and feeling jealous of them because of you made certain choices and, and, and generally just trying to sort of get on with things and see the positive and try and make the best of it. Even though you didn't enjoy philosophy, that's very philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. you had a huge next big opportunity, Google and YouTube, which was another big stint in your career, but you were doing quite a different role there. Will you tell me a little bit about your time there? Yes. So I suppose after my startups, I went to MTV, which got me back into television. And after MTV, I went to ITV. And so just to go back to your question about... Um, British companies. So ITV in a way was the most British company I worked for. And actually it was guilty of some of the things that I think um, that sense of being run by a certain sort of person, being perhaps a bit more elitist in various ways. But in other ways, it was, it was amazing because it was genuinely a creative business with people who loved what they did, who really wanted to create things. And I, I was a marketeer. And so for the first time, I really began to see my work kind of in the world. You'd see it on air. You'd see it on posters. You, you'd drive and be part of bits of culture. That was very exciting. That was it's a, very seductive, isn't it? Yes. Because television, I think about this quite a lot in terms of all of the different mediums. Television is something that just has this real attraction shininess to it where it's like if you can go back to your hometown and someone has seen what you've done because you all have the same yes. watching the same tv show it's really really seductive yes it's really seductive and it's I mean it's a seductive medium because it's you know it's the best way to tell stories it's seductive medium because it unites people or it did even at that point you know obviously now it's much more atomized but those moments when there's cultural connection 
and and to be part of culture even if it's as the marketer of a show but to sort of feel that 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 people are united because they're watching a drama or they're watching x factor on a saturday night that's very sort of satisfying um, yeah very satisfying and i used to have this office which was covered in um imagery of, of things that we created because we would make a lot of posters we'd do a lot of press advertising and i found that this incredible sense of every day we shipped things and you could see mm, the progress. tangibility of your work um it was also important for me ITV because that was the first time i properly began to be a manager and begin to think about what it is to lead people and to to be responsible for people and what that means rather than just be sort of good at what you do where did you learn how to be a manager i think that's a really good question because i think about that a lot i mean basically by observing others and i think by reflecting what it is that works for you and therefore the version of that that you can then deliver to others um there was a little bit of training but it was probably a bit you know sort of shit at that point because <laughs> it was probably early in that whole idea that you could train management mm. which i actually think you really can yeah. but but it took a long time for it to probably find the right processes frameworks language to make that meaningful i think it's about genuinely being interested in people and learning beginning to understand particularly when people are not like you what it is that motivates them how you kind of connect with that when things are not working and how you deal with it you know how you kind of grapple unpleasant situations and things that frighten you and how you deal with that in the best way so partly by doing and partly by observing and trying to really sort of think about what what you would want or what affects you and then how you make a version of that and that it's from there that i went to google so they've then headhunted me because at that point google had just bought youtube and they they saw that the opportunity with youtube was going to be very much about unlocking television budgets really it's like how can we get tv advertisers into youtube to make it a kind of viable platform and so they very explicitly went out and recruited people in whether it was partnerships whether it was um marketing whether it was sales from tv companies and so i went from itv to youtube that was an extraordinary sort of then experience to be part of this american tech organization where for the first 6 months i couldn't understand what anyone said to me because everyone speaks in acronyms <laughs> it was it was 7000 people i think when i joined google and even and it probably had more in common with its startup phase than its big tech phase but it was already incredibly Uh, for me it was the biggest place i'd ever worked it was chaotic it was a matrix of sort of you know kind of multiple dimensions it was absent of hierarchy it worked in a totally different way it was very engineering led at first it felt very uncreative coming from somewhere like itv which is explicitly creative with creatives and people who make television and and things but actually i came to understand that it was very creative it's just different sort of creativity that kind of engineering the way people think building things it's a different form of 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 creativity and i hated my first 6 months how did you cope what kept you grounded and kept you in the job even um i felt very um i felt very adrift and i'd been very happy at itv i felt very stressed by my inability to kind of really understand the language how people communicated how you got things done and it made me very um sort of miserable i would wake up in the middle of the night worrying about things but in a way there was i had two small children at the time there was a lot going on and it was sort of we'll just get on with it you know and and of course you get on with it and it got better 
And that was a real learning experience, which was on the one hand, I think, listen to your instincts. And if you find yourself in an environment that doesn't feel happy, then you should listen to that. But Google was a really, was a learning for me because I wasn't happy and I did feel very adrift in those first few months, but then it came good. And so in a sense, you also have to learn when, when to get to give it a bit more time, when, when your initial reaction is not, is not a real one, that you can find your place. I think maybe it's about time, that you have to give yourself a bit of time genuinely to explore whether or not it's the right place for you. And if after six months you're still feeling that same way and nothing's got better, then you go, okay, this is not for me. Do you think in this generation now, people are far too quick to jump through roles? like cycle through roles? Possibly. I, mean, it's re- I think that's a really interesting thought, which is sometimes you do have to give things time and sometimes you, you need to grow in the job. It's not just, oh, I've done it for a year, I'm ready for the next thing. Sometimes that's not the case. You actually do have more to learn. You get better. The learning curve can be quite long and sort of, you know, kind of gradual in a way. And you can still get to a point where you're plateauing and then you need sort of more or you need to do different things. But I think underestimating learning is a is a risk, I think. Oh, I've done it. I've done it. I've done those things once. You know, now I'm good at it. I'm ready for the next thing. And experience is, is valuable. You have to, but you have to put the time in to get experience. Because one of the things that was fascinating about Google was they, from very early on, because they were an engineering organization, they would gather loads and loads of data. And they had all sorts of data, which was everything from how people got scored during their interview process. And they used to interview, you used to have to have eight interviews, everyone would score you, it was entered into a database, you know, et cetera, to how you were scored from a performance basis. And we used to be scored every quarter. So you had all people's performance data that you could look at. And then how people were reviewed by their peers, how they were reviewed by their managers, how they progressed. And when they went back and did analysis over you know, several years worth of that kind of data, they realized that um, because they had a very rigorous hiring process, they very rarely hired badly. However, often they would get people who would be underperforming in their jobs. And what they found was like 90% of the time, because they knew and they had confidence in who they'd hired, if you moved the person, so if they went into a different role with a different manager, you could completely change their performance trajectory. And I think there's something in that, which is you could have very talented people and you can put them in the wrong place with the wrong people around them. And then you can judge that they're not somehow good at their job. But actually, if you put them in a different place with a different manager, they can be amazing at their job. It's like that Jim Collins, like get on the bus, but then get them in the right seat. Yes, in the bus. I think that's completely right. So if someone's underperforming and if someone feels they're underperforming or if someone is unhappy, it isn't necessary that they are wrong for the organization or that you shouldn't be there. It's perhaps that there's something else that's wrong and how do you sort that out? What did you learn about management and leadership in that Google data-driven system? Mm. So you're managing very clever people, often who are very entitled, often who are very opinionated. They are also managing a lot of Americans who are very, who are educated both sort of in school and college, but then in professional environments to have expectations, which were very different at that point to, I think how, so managing Americans was very different to managing Brits. How so? Um, What kind of expectations? Expectations for feedback, expectations for you as a manager um, to show up, to essentially be mentoring them, 
giving them a reasonably consistent level of guidance and feedback, being very um, able to articulate what their wants were and having no embarrassment about mm. it. English much less, much less willing to come forward, much less explicit and upfront, sometimes probably a bit more passive aggressive, you know, much less in some ways clear. You know, so, so Americans would be... Um, you know, if, if you disagreed, you'd disagree, but very frequently then the disagreement would be dealt with and everyone would move on. Whereas in, in the UK, often it would carry on outside the room. Mm. There would be sort of- More back, office politics or like in the pub afterwards chatting. Many more chatting. office politics, yeah. many more things actually happening out of the room. Whereas it was much more sort of, um, well, at its best, it was much more, it was clear, it was open. It was at times hard. But in a way, you always knew where you were. Mm. And and if you could prove yourself, there was much less um, bias against you because you weren't, I don't know, part of kind of the, the gang or the sort of, you know, the, the clique in a way. And and it's a bit of a cliche, but, but nonetheless. And Americans are much more can-do. They're much more, of course we can, opportunity, anything's, anything's possible, you know, if you kind of create the right team in the right environment. Whereas there's a tendency, or at least there was, I think in 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 the UK to be a bit more cynical and negative, and that might also have been that time in Silicon Valley where the world was, you know, it just seemed that anything was possible. Um, but that was definitely there was, was much more optimistic working in the states and 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 working with Americans in a way. Did you move your whole family over? Yes. What was that like? Um, in a way, I'd always wanted to do it. Uh, I'd always wanted to work in America. You lived in San Francisco. Yes, I'd always wanted to live in New York. Never thought I was going to live in San Francisco. Uh, but it turns out that, you know, if you have a partner, it's very hard to find the right time because, you know, everything's a kind of compromised and it's like who's... And it just so happened that everything came together, that when I was off with the job, um, my partner could move, the children were small enough. It was incredibly hard because um, it's lonely but but for me as an individual, it was totally fine because I had work. And so I had all of that. And that becomes an incredibly supportive network. You know, you're, it's, it's, it was very exciting. It was very fulfilling from a work perspective. The children were small enough that they were relatively adaptable. They went and, you know, they, they found their own sort of little worlds. It was really hard for my husband. And that was the bit that was difficult. It was the fact that you're triangulating your family and your domestic life with your work life and you're dealing with someone who didn't have the professional network or kind of uh, center of gravity because he was still working for his company in the UK. So that was the bit that made it hard. Um, professionally, it was it was a bit intimidating, but actually it was amazing. How did you, as a family, integrate mm. into the local scene? Because I'm picturing you, you know, the kids going to preschool or whatever yeah. they were going to, you running off and then you're husband having to find his way within that community and also having a very distinctly British vibe about yes, it. <laughs> yes, totally. I know the Americans were constantly confused by him because you know, he, he would make very English jokes. Jokes, yeah. And they his just, sense of humour is really specific. Oh God, yeah. And they would think he, I mean, he would make jokes about, you know, like killing the children and they would take it literally and it would be this sort of really awkward kind of, you know, sort of miscommunication. So, you know, we were introduced to various people. We were lucky enough to make some friends. friends. Um, and he actually tried really hard about getting to know people, actually getting involved in some sort of, you know, kind of startups, following up on connections that were kind of offered to us. Um, 
I don't think we did enough. He was very resistant to sort of spending time with people I worked with. Mm. He had a real kind of, um, and that was probably a mistake because that's mm. probably your natural network and community and you should probably embrace it a bit more. It's there, you know, actually my kind of Google colleagues probably were pretty welcoming and, and they would have been a natural set of kind of people to spend time with. Um, you have to follow up on everything. You have to work quite hard. It's something you have to actively work you at. Do. I'm just thinking, you know, early in my career when I was working at Nike and I just met my son's father, we dallied with the idea of going to Portland and taking yeah. a role there. The thing that was really holding me back was exactly this issue which is well how if I already have a network at Nike and there's things going on how will he feel yeah. being outside of that network and also having a little bit of disdain for that culture totally. because it always is no matter what organization there's always a distinctive culture well it's a bit of kool-aid you know yeah, and, and exactly and, and now when I look back on it I can completely understand his perspective it's a God, they're all like, you know, a cult. Mm. And um, and it's very hard to be the partner on the outside of that. And I think um, most people who relocate, that if it fails, it fails because the partner is unhappy and they just don't find their own, you know, their own sort of um, place and they end up feeling lonely and missing mm. home. So then you move back. Yes, it's, it was interesting. It was an experiment. Partly for me, it was an experiment in what will I miss? I, you know, whereas before probably it would never been the right moment and I'd never quite been brave enough to sort of, you know, shake up your life, you know, this sort of lovely life with your friends in London. It was a really interesting moment of, well, what, well, am I going to miss my friends? You know, and, and the answer is yes. <laughs> um, uh, but it was kind of an interesting sort of process to go through of, could you do it? Could you sort of, you know, could you survive? Could you make a success of it kind of professionally? And also, did it make you appreciate what you had at home? Which it really did, which was a lovely thing. Um, we came back. I would have stayed, I think, another year. He really wanted to come back and it was the right time. It's probably the right time for the kids because it allowed them to sort of, you know, it was just before they were going to have to transition to bigger schools, et cetera. And my dad got ill. And so there was suddenly you felt very far away. That, that was a compelling collection of reasons to come back. Tell me about when you came back. What did you do? Coming back was lovely, actually. It was really wonderful to get back to London. It sort of, things had changed. Lots of things had stayed the same. It was, had been great to have a break. And um, uh, and there was a lovely period, actually, um, from we got back in the summer of 2015 until really the Brexit referendum, when when it just felt that you were back in the best place in the world. It was a, a great year. It was a great it was year. so good. Um, and I carried on doing my job um, at YouTube and I sort of knew it wasn't going to work, but I also, it, there was too much kind of change. And so it was sort of easier to carry on doing this sort of global job back in the UK. And actually, you probably could do that if you were, it wasn't really the fact that you had to work late hours. I kind of got quite used to that. And I quite liked the fact that you were relatively independent and you didn't have things on in the morning and you could do sort of, you know, things for yourself. And, it, and if I'd been willing to get on a plane and go back every three weeks, I think it would have been possible. Yeah. But if the whole point of coming back was not to travel and not to be doing those things, it was very hard. You were just never in the right conversations. Mm -hmm. It was very, this is pre-pandemic. So it's pre, even though remote work was possible, it wasn't really possible. It wasn't really the thing I think no. about this often because in that year I was living in Wolverhampton, um, taking two years to spend time with family. And one of the reasons I had to move back to London was because I thought, well, I can't, be not, here I'm not in the work. mix yeah I'm yeah. not in the mix whereas now 
now it would be different. Plenty of people totally. do that. Um, so I got back. I knew I wanted to leave Google. Google had become very big, much more internally focused, much more, I felt, about how did you build your profile career internally and not care as much about the impact of your work externally. And it's so big, you know, we all could have, I've, I felt you could have kind of gone on holiday for six months and nothing would have changed because it was such a machine and it was a money-making machine. But this is actually really interesting because one of the things you said earlier is around this lack of office politicking, you know, career climbing. It's really about focusing on the work and the outcome. And when an environment changes like that, I think it suits one type of person, yeah. but it sounds like it didn't suit you. No. And I think that if you have been lucky enough to be in a place where actually it did feel like it was about the impact of the work and you were shaping culture and you could feel this, you could feel the emergence of this new kind of cultural force with YouTube and what we were doing with the creators, um, what we did around changing people's perceptions about what YouTube could be by just doing sort of totally unexpected things like recruiting an orchestra of young people and bringing them together in, in the Sydney Opera House to play, you know, and it all been done on YouTube and via YouTube. Um, and that just changed. It just became a bigger company. And you're right, there was much more office politics, much more career progression and internal aggrandizement and your own sort of career kind of um, mongering in a way. I wanted to get out of that. And I wanted to go and be in a place where you felt you were building something and you personally could have an impact. And that was what was appealing about Charlotte Tilbury because she was already um, a fast growing business. It was a really amazing brand. I, I mean, she had done such a good job of building it on YouTube and on Instagram. I was really interested in makeup. I was fascinated by this idea of building a brand through content and through media in a way. And really I was brought in to be to be the kind of the person who organized, ran, drove their digital business, but also through creating a whole a whole kind of media arm, um, you know, of, of what she was doing. And in a way, that was the only way that you were going to get out of somewhere that was as kind of privileged and sort of pampered as Google in a way, to go and sort of feel that you were part of something that was a, a growth story. It's interesting because the when you look at your career history, the only two sort of deviations have both been beauty, founder, startups. It's like you did it twice mm. almost to make sure, so yes. to speak. Yeah. What would you say was the process when you realized, actually, this is not for me? Like, what were some of the big um, signifiers that you were like, actually, no? Uh well, I think I'm more comfortable within media than I am within commerce. Mm. I think uh, I think that I was unprepared in a way, certainly the first time for the particular energy and commitment that I think is legitimately required when you are building a business as she was building. And so I think it was as much um, I was the wrong person, I think, for that environment at that point in my career. A lot of people listening will have been through a similar situation. I know as a startup founder, I've made hires from larger corporate yeah. um, entities and found it quite challenging both ways. How do you reflect on it as a learning rather than as a failure? Like, you yes. know, it's, it's difficult to be like, well, I tried that and it didn't no I look so I actually think it was an incredibly valuable thing to have done because it taught me so much about myself and and you realize that you can get to quite a late stage in your career and not really understand 
because you've never had to. It's only it's only when you essentially make missteps that you really learn something about yourself. It's it's through the kind of the bad choices or the bad decisions or the times when you were unhappy that you learn what it is that you need. When you're when you're happy and fulfilled, you don't you don't you know you, as I say, you take it for granted or you don't have that kind of the capacity to have that learning. And so I think there is a sense of I understood that I really needed. I really needed to believe in the purpose of the organization. I can commit as much energy and my heart and soul if I believe what I'm doing is, you know, if I believe in what I'm doing. If I don't, I find it very difficult. So I think it's that the need for purpose, the need to be working with people where you have a commonality really that flows probably from that purpose and that where you have a kind of set of values that align and, you know, kind of you don't have to be the same. In fact, diversity is, you know, is 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 fundamental. But you have to believe that you share a common set of of values and ultimately goals that you're all in it together. Tell me about your beliefs and purpose now. What are they? What do you believe in? I believe that. So I believe that journalism is fundamental to a free and open society. I think that we can play a part in helping people to navigate the world in a in a better way and to actually you know to make the world a better place genuinely believe that we through a combination of 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 clarity which is really about facts about making sure that people have um factual and trustworthy information but also imagination which is how do you tell stories and and provide people with solutions and um the capacity to navigate the world i think we can make the world a fairer more just and better place and i think that's really important and how I can lead an organization and lead a business in order to make that journalism sustainable and help it to flourish is the thing that I believe in. So let's talk about your greatest step, not your misstep, which is at The Guardian, where you were very, very renowned in making that revenue growth to enable that journalism to be sustainable. Talk to me about your entrance into The Guardian. So I came into The Guardian um, initially as a consultant to help them think about video. It was at the time when Facebook and Zuckerberg were saying it's all about the pivot to video. Publishers were wrestling with what what does this mean? I just come from YouTube. So um, I started off sort of framing how The Guardian could, should think about video, particularly in the context of a primarily, not, not only, but primarily text-based um, news organization. Then I came in and, and as a role of helping them navigate the relationships with platforms and really partnerships. And again, why were why was The Guardian publishing on as many platforms and in the ways that it was? And was that the right sort of strategic solution going forwards? And did we have to rethink the relationship with platforms as the world began to change? Um, it was a really busy time because I remember there was a lot of discussion about paywalls mm -hmm. and should we be allowing, you know, yes. Google and Apple to distribute for free or should, you know, there was totally. lots and lots of it was, movement going on then. And if you remember, that was the time of maximum disruption. New, everybody, it, it, all news organizations were wrestling with a complete sort of apparent failure of their own old business models. You know, print was falling was falling apart. Um, legacy business models were no longer working, and the um, the sort of golden, sort of seductive idea that digital advertising was going to solve everything was just proving not to be the case. Plus, we were allowing, you know, essentially we were distributing all of our journalism for free everywhere because we thought that you would find a way of of realizing revenue on the back of it. So there was a total change in in thinking. 
um, there was um, everybody began to kind of try and experiment and explore. And you're right, lots of people then began to look at paywalls, um, some very successfully and some less successfully. Brexit happened, Trump happened, the world was changing. It was an incredible news cycle, mm. but that wasn't so. That was translating into audience, but it wasn't translating into money. And The Guardian had found itself in a very difficult situation where um, it was losing a lot of money. Actually, at its most bleakest, it only had a sort of five-year runway, um, given that its funding model is that it it has a trust and the trust funds um, any losses that The Guardian might make. So it was a real time of transformation, of change. A lot of people um, had left the organization and a very different approach was having to be made about what the future could be. So the most fundamental change, and this was before I arrived, was the adoption of a kind of different way of working and the realization that what had previously been as a legacy organization, very siloed, they didn't have to communicate, they didn't have to work with one another, they could all just sort of move forward in their own sort of lane, was not going to be the way that that you um, found success. And so you had to bring people together, you had to find ways of getting cross-functional groups and sort of bringing people from different disciplines into sort of huddles. And you had to get people working in a much more agile, experimental way to a kind of clearly defined goal, but with no idea actually the path to get to that goal. The way you describe it, it sounds to me like that Google cross-functional engineering mindset way of working and almost effectively product management really played a part in you during that time. It did. During that time. It was very much borrowing from Google and OKRs and the discipline of OKRs and finding a way to translate that into in an appropriate way into into the guardian and when you say appropriate what was the reception like when you tried to bring in these so i didn't bring it in originally that it was actually my, my the previous ceo who really brought it in and it was hard so i think the reception was it would not have been possible except there was such a palpable sense of crisis and um, there was new leadership, but there was a new editor-in-chief and there was a new CEO. And there was this revelation that actually the finances and the budget was in a very um, uh, bad way. And from that sense of crisis, great innovation was possible. And things that would not have been possible in a more benign time, people were willing to try. There was a process of really trying to um, acknowledge what was and wasn't working. And out of that transparency and honesty came change and came sort of some structural change. But really, as I say, the biggest change was in this ways of working. Can I ask, typically the average worker wouldn't necessarily have full visibility and transparency of a a larger company's finances in that way. What was it like bringing everyone on site, getting everyone understanding this thing that we love, that we all work so hard for, could possibly fail? Yes, I think, I mean, I I wasn't here at that point. I think it was profoundly um, shocking for the organization um, and could have been incredibly sort of destabilizing, but actually I think became after some really difficult decisions, I mean, there was a lot of cost cutting, but out of that, I think came this very energizing sense of we're going to get to break even. It was a very clear, very clarifying goal that was unifying for the entire organization. A North Star. A North Star, totally. And um, and there was a permission to work in a different way that came right from the top. And there was a transparency, you're right, there was a very important piece, which was an explicit commitment to transparency around the numbers, around progress, and that flowed down through the organization. And I think they were they were the vital ingredients to getting people to kind of, to really sort of start to innovate and think and do things that seem to be impossible. 
So one of the things was there was there was a real insight around the genuine relationship that readers had with The Guardian, had with editorial, that this was something very special. There was a whole lot of work around membership and this idea that you could create this kind of membership program, loyalty program. But it kind of um, really tapped out because it was very much bounded around events and this idea that you deliver in-person events and and that that would be the sort of the value exchange. You'd become a member and you get these sort of benefits. That was fine, but it only got to you a certain point. It's not, scale. yeah. And we know this with the stack as well, yes. that to really make that scale, it cannot rely on these in-person or even on Zoom because no. people get fatigued no. by it, events. So there was a goal around numbers of people supporting The Guardian members, but also a revenue goal. No idea how to get there. There was a group of people who came together, which was very um, editorially led, but had product, it had engineering, had data, and it had sort of business and marketing. Sounds like a war room. Totally. All of this is very wartime CEO. And I'm like getting really excited hearing it. It was was, was an exciting time, yeah. There was a crucial decision and enablement that came from the editor, which was, why don't you embed the ask and the story um, within the, within the article? So at first, the experiments were all with ad units, but people were blind to them and they didn't see them and it looked like an ad. But when you gave it sufficient space and you began to write it as though editorial essentially wrote it, and it came at the bottom of an article, so it scaled and traveled with the article, that then really began to drive, um, uh, you know, it began to yield results. And because we have scale, because we'd, we'd invested and built this huge kind of global digital audience, and because on the back of these incredibly emotive news events like Brexit and then Trump, you had people who were so engaged with the news that suddenly you could go through these very fast iterative cycles. And it was genuinely, you were using this space to test messaging, language, language, yeah. colors design, as well, design, colors, conversion metrics. And, and so essentially you had this very rapid acquisition um, sort of testing kind of capacity. Every morning they would huddle, they would look at the data, they would cycle through multiple simultaneous experiments. And initially, everyone was very cynical about it. Even in the organization, there were people who were very cynical about it. They felt it was a begging bowl. You know, um, competitors and private eye, you know, took the piss out of us for doing it. Um, and everyone would go, well, does it work? Does it really work? Surely no one's going to give you money for something that's for free. And then the cynicism began to really kind of change into curiosity because everyone would ask about it. We kept doing it. It was still visible. And then as the curiosity got answered with, yes, it does work, because you could begin to feel the tangible sort of success, then that became really kind of um, exciting and everyone wanted to be part of it. And everyone suddenly saw that this this very exciting, interesting thing was happening. It felt innovative. It felt something that was very Guardian. It was totally being led essentially by readers and what readers would respond to and that very real relationship that they had. And then it was all about how do you build on this and how do you how do you unpack what the learnings are and turn this into something that's really powerful. What did you learn about yourself during this crisis time? That... It's all about um, relationships, that essentially it's people who keep you going, that um, results are incredibly, coming back to that, once you begin to see the impact of the work, once you begin to feel the momentum building because you're doing something, um, uh, how incredibly exciting and motivating that will be. And that then it's really about managing people over a marathon, not a sprint. You know, that sort of sense of, things are working, we're making a difference. That's very, it's very easy to get people to be part of that in a way. 
What's harder is when there are setbacks, when things don't work. How do you pick people up? It's like, how do you how do you manage and motivate a team over the long term, not just after the over the short term wins? And about how do you maintain energy? How do you remove barriers for people? How do you make sure that they take the moments to kind of rejuvenate? You can't keep going at 100 miles an hour all the time. And you have to be sensitive about that. You have to be able to sort of allow people to have downtime, uptime, even when they're working really hard because you've got big goals to sort of achieve. How do you define the difference between management and leadership? Because what you're describing to me is, yes, the physicality of managing a team but also the inspiration and motivation of leading would you have thought of yourself as a leader at that point so I think I began to think of myself as a leader at Google because management I think is 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 in a sense the there's the technocratic bit there's the things that you ought to do as a good manager things that you should be delivering performance reviews feedback kind of ensuring that people's careers are being looked after ensuring that there's fairness you know sort of performance managing where necessary and then you're right there's leadership which is a much more about how do you think about the team as more than a collection of individuals? How do you set kind of goals? How do you say no to things? How do you clear the path for people? And how do you inspire them about the, the journey that they're going to make? And they're, they're different pieces of your of your energy and and your personality in a sense. And probably as you get more senior, the the leadership piece becomes more and more important. And it's more and more important about that how do you create an environment where people can flourish and then how do you get out of the way for the for the things that actually others should be doing and you shouldn't be doing so how do you not kind of you know interfere distract you know kind of micromanage where actually there are others who are better at things than you are and your job is to find them keep them motivate them and kind of set them up to kind of have a common goal a sense of excitement about where they're trying to get to you came in as a consultant at The Guardian. Where do you feel that your leadership journey began, which has now resulted in your position today? I mean, it began then. It began with this realisation that ultimately this is a people business. It's a relationship business. It works when people come together and um, we play to our strengths and we allow ourselves to sort of, we allow ourselves to understand what it is that makes us so special if you understand that when you arrive and you build the relationships and you understand where you need to be humble and where you need to be brave and where you need to be passionate about what's special about The Guardian and where you can actually um, borrow from others or bring expertise from outside in, that's what it takes to succeed here. And I think it starts from the moment you arrive in a way. It's understanding what it is that's special about this place and then also what is less constructive and how you try and move into more of the when we're at our best rather than that when we you know we don't play to our strengths during this period of real shifts in media you were made interim ceo a lot of people listening may have seen that role and thought what does that actually mean what do you actually do and how do you make it work when you're effectively keeping the seat warm yeah what was that like for you it was initially quite overwhelming. Um, and then you think, well, you've just got to get on with it. There is a piece of it, which is you are very conscious that you are keeping the seat warm. You do not feel necessarily empowered to make some of the decisions that you are empowered to make when, when you've actually got the job. 
I was not interim CEO for very long. Um, and I think that probably um, made it easier. So in a sense, I got the learning experience, the insight into what it is to kind of do that role. Um, I got to make some decisions and choices um, in that time. Um, but it wasn't that I then became frustrated because I couldn't make other choices because it began to drift into a much longer period of time because actually the new CEO came in really quite quickly. I think if you are interim for longer, it's a delicate, quite tricky kind of role to play because you are you have a lot of there are a lot of expectations of you, but you aren't necessarily empowered to to make as much change as you might want to make. Now you are in the role. And you've been CEO for just over a year. Yes. Just a year. A it's year. your it's anniversary a, soon. Anniversary, yes. Oh, congratulations. What have been your priorities over the last year? The first priority um, was really about team and um, uh, about ensuring that we had the right people in the right in the right roles, some people left, and so therefore we needed to find the right replacements, an opportunity to think about what roles we wanted for the next five years. There was a real kind of need to refine the strategy. It wasn't a revolution, but there was a real need to kind of evolve and really articulate what it is that we want to be and where we're going. And then there was a cultural piece of the the organization um, had had some disruption. It had had sort of changes in leadership and the recovery from COVID wasn't easy for any organization. And so there was a, how do you reconnect the culture? How do you go back to the sense of collaborative shared goals? Some of that had been lost, I think, in that COVID period and that sense of we're really in it together. We're really clear about what it is we want to do, about where our ambitions are, about where we want to invest and how we can grow. And we're going to do this together and we're going to do it as a sort of as a with a real belief that when editorial flourish, you know, commercial can flourish. It is the business model in the end. Great journalism that connects with people around the world is our business model. and um, But at the same time, if editorial is flourishing and commercial isn't flourishing, well, then that just leads to instability, unsustainability, and you have to make cuts. So um, it's really been about that, um, the articulation of a strategy and this belief of it, of it, we're better together and that sense of collaboration is at the heart. And then how do you kind of communicate that and inspire the organization to really get behind that if i was to look at a pie chart of how you spend your time how would you say it's chunked up i guess what i'm asking is what does a ceo of the guardian actually do yes yeah, a very good question a lot of it is about people and people at all levels of the organization that's back to motivation it's back to communication my big learning is um you can never communicate enough mm. and every time you think that you've communicated to a point where you're sick of your own voice you still haven't done enough um, so I think there's a lot of communication, whether that's one-on-one, -on -one, whether that's with small groups, some of that with big groups. There's a lot of cross-functional uh, alignment building and relationship building and particularly um, understanding what's driving editorial and what's important to them and sort of what they need and how we can support that and how we can also turn that into successful business. There's a certain amount of external engagement. Uh, how do you represent the Guardian where it needs to be represented? <laughs> oh, and then we had a cyber attack as well, so that oh, took up. No. That took up. So crisis, the incoming crisis management, yes, firefighting, yes, bits and bobs of firefighting. So 
you said when you started this conversation that you didn't really have an idea of what you were going to do. Did you ever think that this would be it? No. You never thought? So the the interesting point was um, there was a moment when I'd left The Guardian, I'd, I'd been out of The Guardian for a year, and there was a change in the CEO, and it became clear that they would be looking for a new CEO. And at that point, I had to reflect on whether or not that was a job I was interested in. At that point, I really did have to think, what is it that would I want? And what is it that I think I can offer? And um, do I go for it again? And at that point, then I did know that that was what I wanted. And I thought on reflection, I do believe, A, I believe that this is a job that I really want to do. Do I believe in the purpose? Yes. Do I believe I have something to offer The Guardian, which makes me the right person for the job? Yes. So at that point, I knew. But no, I didn't know five years ago. What are some of the tools that you use for making very difficult decisions like that? Do you go away and retreat? Do you speak to people? Do you journal? What are the processes mm. that you do when something as big as should I put my hat in the ring for this role when they show up for you? In the end, I think it's about talking to people that you trust. And through talking to people and getting their perspectives, you begin to kind of clarify your own thinking and your own um, what your own wants and emotions are. It's very hard to do it alone in isolation. And, and I would extend that even to journaling or trying to... So I think there is a place for, I'm actually going to lay down my thoughts. I'm going to do the pros and cons column. I'm going to be structured in my thinking myself. But oh, I also think I, in the end, I really depend on thinking it through with others. Sometimes they're the same people. Sometimes they might be different people and surprising people who really help you crystallize what you think is right for you. My final question, what advice would you give to a young leader developing herself in the role? First of all, um, it, it genuinely is a marathon, not a sprint. I think that your career is a long career. And sometimes I think we, um, we're too much, we're worrying too much about the short term. We're in too much haste. We want to see immediate progress. We compare ourselves to others. And actually your career and your life is a long arc and things continue to happen. Things continue to develop. You'll be surprised. So don't feel the need to rush and don't make short-termist decisions, I think, because they tend to be the ones that you'll regret more, although everything is learning. But um I think uh, stay curious. It's, it's by being interested in others around you. It's by being interested in what others think that you will continue to learn and you'll also find opportunities that you might not have been able to predict. Life is not necessarily predictable, I think. Um, if you're open to surprising opportunities and you're constantly sort of curious and having some sort of curiosity, reflection, then I think you'll learn about yourself and you'll learn about what's right for you and you'll be open to things that might surprise you. And last, actually, fun question. Is there a management book or something that our listeners can buy that has really inspired you over the years? I'll tell you the book that I did read that I genuinely made a difference was The Messy Middle, mm. which, and, and I think we've talked about Scott this. Scott Belsky. Yes, and that came at a time, um, actually, when I was at Josh and, and in the startup, and I really didn't know what to do and how to kind of what strategic path to, to, to pursue. And I think it was helpful because all of the stories that you hear or the management books that you tend to read, 
there's always the happy ending and it almost starts from the end and goes backwards. And this was an acknowledgement that that's just not true and it's not authentic. And that the, the journey from where you are to whatever the end is going to be is messy and confusing and that that's okay. And that that's not just you, it's actually very common. And that the key is how you navigate it and how you learn from it and how you think about taking others in that sort of messy, confusing, where you're blind to what the sort of next turn is going to be. And that I found very, very helpful. Anna Bateson, thank you so much. Thank you. Executive Realness is brought to you by The Stack World, a media and community platform where you can learn from powerful women. Join The Stack World today and build your new peer network with thousands of members who are all looking to grow themselves personally and professionally. Download The Stack World app now on iOS or Android. You'll find the links in the show notes.